Hi, folks. Welcome back to Ellie Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. I am here with my co-host and bestie. Hey, it's Dr. Shiloh. Uh, I have no idea what day it is. I don't know. I, I don't know where I am. I know I'm in a room somewhere surrounded by pillows with a computer. Yeah, I've just uh, been in this closet for like three months. So. Seriously. Um. Seriously. Well, now you know what my experience was like for the first 16 years of my life. <laughs> oh, my God. But I'm pumped. That's a nice. Bump. Nice. <laughs> Seriously. No, it is. I'm sure that we are not the only ones feeling this. This is like a, a, certainly a nationwide, if not a worldwide phenomenon of uh, just feeling completely out of sorts. Well, plus it um, feels super weird because you and I literally have not recorded an episode in over a month. So, and yet we've been incredibly busy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People know I mean, we've, we've been busy. So, yeah, we've been doing all sorts of stuff for the show. And, but, um, but this is great. We're back. We're back on, in the saddle. This is really cool. I, I can't believe it's taken us this long to get to this topic because this is literally the meat and potatoes of what you and I were doing together when we met and what I did exclusively for a number of years. So today we're going to be talking about internet facilitated sex offenses specifically. And I think probably the thing that has thrown us off Shiloh is that we talk about aspects of it so much and how it interrelates to so many other episodes that we've that we've uh, recorded, but we haven't specifically drilled down into this particular area. Right. Yeah. It um, in the giant umbrella of sexual offenses, this definitely is its own little niche. And I think I got to see that when when I went to work for a company that for three years, literally, it was just internet offenders and. Um, it's just, it's really interesting to step into it. And really, we're going to talk about what crimes these are, the psychology behind it, of course. Um, but when you and I were in internship, we worked for a private company that contracted with parole and probation. And so people who had been convicted of these offenses would come back out into the community, and then we would do their assessment and their treatment. And so that's how it, it sort of works in the criminal justice system is that they are funneling them out to companies who have experts and expertise just in this area. So I, I'm really interested to know just kind of your takeaway from that year what were some of the big moments for you? And I'm sure we can kind of sprinkle this throughout the episode today as well. But what what was the experience like for you? Because you left and kind of went on to other things. It was it was a really valuable experience. It was a valuable experience in that it, you know, I I knew by the third year, like the last year of academics in my doctoral program, I knew that I wanted to work in forensics. And I was thinking about more family forensics. And I knew that for pure financial reasons and some interest in the subject, I was going to go work in a prison facility just because it, I knew that there would be a job and I knew that there would be benefits, which I needed. You know, I needed I needed cash. I needed insurance. And I also was fascinated by the population. So, but I remember, and I, I think I've, I've talked about this several times, going into the interview with Lisa, was it Lisa? Yeah, Lisa and Leah, who were running the program at the time. And 
you know, just being really transparent with them saying like, I'm made a, I've applied for a lot of places. This sounds really fascinating. I know nothing about this population and Leah um, being really fantastic and saying, I don't expect you to know anything. That's why you come to an internship of this intensity is so that you can learn and you can learn with, you know, with a, with a format and a program. And so I really like walked out of the interview have, I went into the interview not invested in getting the position. I walked out of it really wanting the job, like oh, really, really wanting the job. And also, like we I've joked about before, not having any idea because I'm such a, you know, dancing monkey, song and dance guy. I usually come out of interviews thinking, yeah, I charm the shit out of them. Right, I got and this, it. <laughs> and this was one where I was like, I have no idea how these two right. people feel about me. And they were just like completely stone faced. And they, apparently they are with everybody. I mean, like, that's right. just, you know. Yeah, having... exactly. I had the same feeling. I was like, damn, I did really well in that interview. I know I did. I had an, a great answer for everything. I think my experience came through, but they gave me nothing. <laughs> and that was hard. It's just a hard process when you're vying for an internship anyway. Yeah. But then, you know, you know, following through with what you, the, the question you posited is, I just started peeling an onion that really, uh, I was not, I was not expecting to go to some places. I mean, I certainly um, was challenged in my compassion for, for aspects of humanity, because we were really seeing some very ugly stuff. I mean, not, not that we were exposed to material, but with people who, you know, a good, third of the people that we were treating had no remorse or no insight or didn't care to develop any insight and care to, you know, develop any compassion for the people that they had victimized. And that was really surprising to me. And then also, you know, facilitating um, a group of sex offenders and showing them the documentary Chicken Hawk and having them discuss Oh gosh, yeah. aspects of it, and then realize that, like, you know, I actually myself had an experience with someone that really, you know, should have used better judgment and should have been a better person. And, you know, so I came away from it. I remember going into Leah and going, okay, just opened up a memory into my right, my attic, and I need to yeah. process it with you. Um, yeah, I was, still show, really I still show parts of that documentary and trainings of chicken hawk because it's such great um examples of some of the cognitive distortions we're going to talk about today that yeah. true pedophiles have and i think most of it is on youtube so if anybody's out there and it's um it's rough i mean it's mm -hmm. not it's rough because it'll it'll challenge you you're you're um there and this is one of the sort of the old school documentaries where they basically just turn on the camera and let people talk yeah and yeah. boy Operation Let Them Talk really digs a hole. They just, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, it, it was very intense, but also, like, there were just the funniest, most surreal moments, too. And I know we've talked about other people, other interns we were there with, and the characters that we worked with, and um, staff, and things like that, that just kind of made it the best experience yeah. you know, from the, the terrible location, the terrible building to um, just really going to, through this experience together and um, 
yeah, I don't know. It's, it was a, it's a fun time to look back on all these years later, but I think also you and I being a little bit older than some of the grad students uh-huh. in, in doctoral programs, you know, me substantially more than you. Um, I just really felt like I was coming, coming into like a really adult situation. Like this is same. Yeah. This is really adult. This is really professional. It's radically different from working in entertainment and it just felt real. I mean, entertainment, which I, I had some really great jobs. I mean, and, and I cherish those experiences. Um, and you are, you're providing a product, you're creating something that, that really influences people's lives. I mean, I, I was, I felt really lucky because I worked on some really very cool projects and, um, but to come into working in a forensic population and realizing like, oh, wow, we're, we're really trying to prevent further harm from happening. That just sort of takes it to a different level. Yeah. I, I think for me, it really sparked just wanting to have, wanting to learn more and wanting to be a part of that learning, like be a part of the research. And so it um, it just lit a fire under me to to do my part in this world and dive into it. And then hence like getting the job with them afterwards and being able to do that. So yeah, that that's kind of setting the the agenda for today. Um, so let's talk about what internet facilitated sex offenses are. And like with so much of crime, I think there's the technology to do types of crime that have always been done. (laughs) It's just now we have a different platform to do that in. So we are offenses. They're primarily child victims. I think we can if you kind of hold that in your mind. Um, so also, I guess this is a good point kind of for a trigger warning to say yeah, definitely. we are going to be talking about crimes against children. We are going to keep it as um, clinical as it needs to be, but also give you information. There's going to be no gory details or details about descriptions of offenses necessarily. Um but we will be using proper terms to sort of get across to you also how horrific this is because you don't want to sugarcoat it. We used to also call them non, or we used to call them hands off offenses, meaning like this wasn't happening in real life. There was no touching. We moved away from that because it started to have this creepy connotation of you know, hands off, hands on crime, you you sort of pictured what was going on in your mind. So then we moved to calling them contact or non-contact offenses. So anything happening over the internet generally starts as non-contact, meaning there is no physical in real life contact, but sometimes it does move to real life contact. So what we're talking about here is as the legal system and a lot of the laws still have in their wording, child pornography offenses, you will hear Scott and I talk about child pornography in a different term, child sexual abuse images, because this is another thing that through the the evolution of looking at these types of offenses, we don't want to label child pornography to sound so dried down to like being a product. We want to remind people what it actually is. It's images of children being sexually abused. It's a lot like using the term child prostitute. 
you yes. know, child child prostitute or child sex worker, that's that's a misnomer because any engagement of a minor in sex work is is rape. Right. No matter exactly. if the per, if the, they're quote unquote consenting to it, it is not allowed. It is illegal. So we, what we're trying to do is not sort of um, cheapen the terms anymore. We want to be very descriptive about the illegality and um, how wrong it is, and that's why we use these specific terms. And it really helps in treatment as well when you're trying to get through to someone because they have built up such a wall and a disassociation with this that it is just a product. It is just pictures instead of really thinking, no, there are victims and stories behind these. Um, So it helps treatment wise as well, but just professionally child sexual abuse images um, is, is the term for those images. Child pornography is still how it reads in charges when we're looking um, at like penal codes and things like that. So under child pornography, you can have possession of it. You can have production of it if you're someone who's actually producing it, or you can be charged with distribution of it. And generally, these are federal crimes because the jurisdiction of the Internet, well, the Internet didn't have a jurisdiction. So usually crimes over the Internet are prosecuted federally by the FBI. This is usually how it's divided up. People can be are charged with all three of these, perhaps, um, or maybe it's pled down to one or two of these. And so possession would be if someone was found in possession of them, right? Like it's in possession on their computer. Again, we're talking virtually, not necessarily having hard copies, although a lot of these collectors we will talk about then download them onto their computer, copy them, put them in binders, uh, code them as a collection. It can take on that that um, realm as well. Production would be it, that that's a biggie. That's people who are actually abusing children and filming it and or you know putting it into production. The distribution one is really interesting because you can have passive distribution or active distribution. So this is going to give you some groundwork onto the the scale of the world of child sexual abuse images and how these offenders sort of work within that world. So passive distribution might be something like they have a server on the dark web and they upload their collection of child pornography just so anyone else who wants to come and grab it can come and grab it. So what would be the motivation for somebody to do that? What do you off the top of your head? Um, a couple of things come to mind. Um, in this world, it, it's, it's really, it's really part of a sick game to to have the skill and to have the challenge of trying to be able to collect as much as possible. Right. It feels like a merit system. Like I'm going to show you and sort of get status in this world is by showing how large my collection is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it might also be to try and see if, you know, if you've it, like paying it back. So if someone has uploaded their stuff and maybe you've taken some of their images that you're sort of sharing 
in this world. Um, so I think there's a lot of different motivations and we might get into that a little bit more when we talk about the ways in which they do this. Um, so that would be passive. You're just kind of putting it out there. And if someone takes it, they take it. Active distribution would be making contact with somebody else in this virtual world or group, and they're asking you for something specific or you're trading specifically with that person. So with child sexual abuse images, something that was really popular on the dark web for a while were these series of images of, of the same victim. And they would usually name it by, you know, that, that person's, that victim's first name unknown if it's the real one or not. So um, an example would be the Vicky series. Someone just like as if they're trading baseball cards might say, hey, I have, you know, seven of the Vicky series images, but I don't have all 10 of them. And they would sort of put out an ad for that or ask to trade images. Um, so that's definitely more active when you're soliciting to gain specific images or here I'm looking for this specifically, almost like putting out an ad and then seeing if someone answers that. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think you're I, I think you're explaining it really well. And like there's so many different directions we can go and I'm not going to I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole. But I am I do want to pull it, put a bullet point in saying that what we you and I learned very quickly in working at that facility was that it wasn't just about sexual urges. It was this Venn diagram of overlap. And for those that, so those individuals that we encountered that had sort of a, an OCD slash collector slash hoarding part of their characterological makeup, that became obsessive for them. Like I got to get those last three of the Absolutely. I have to have them. I have to have the entire Angela series. So there's a right. whole other part of the brain that's being stimulated besides just sexual urges. Yes, yes. And we're going to talk about the pathways of how people get there, and that will be a part of it. Okay, so that's that's pretty much the types of charges you would see for child pornography. Um, now local agencies are able to arrest people for these charges and prosecute them locally. So it's not all just federal anymore. You know, I'm sure you've heard of like local police forces or their task forces putting together big investigations and sort of going after people on a local level. So that, that definitely happens more now. The next type of crime in this area that I want to just hit on is solicitation. So this is one of those cases in which they meet online, yet it is for the means of an end of getting this child or this underage adolescent to meet up in real life for sex. So, so it's not just going, I'm not, it's not about just, I'm logging on so I can just hang out and chat with some kids and chat right. with anybody. It's like, no, I'm going hunting. Right. Yes, Ugh, yes. I don't even like saying I'm going hunting. Like I know. the individual is going hunting. Yeah. 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 So there there can be the solicitation to meet up in person, which is pretty pretty common of what we'll see with these guys. Sex tourism is a whole other thing that we'll talk about in a moment because I want to talk about that in its own category. Or the solicitation of images. They could be interacting with children or adolescents online and asking them to send pictures of themselves. So it could be in a way, virtually through this interaction, they're helping produce child pornography. So solic solicitation can be a couple of different things, but this is what you think about when 
especially as a parent, you're scared of some creep contacting your kid on the internet. Okay, so cyber exhibitionism falls under, again, this sort of a parent's worst nightmare of someone contacting your child. And essentially, this is exhibitionism, but via the computer. So there's a webcam involved, and the offender, excuse me, the adult offender is showing their genitals or masturbating online. And there's a child victim on the other end that's seeing this. The flip of that would be cyber voyeurism, where they are using the victim's webcam to be able to see them in stages of undress or asking them to engage in sexual activity on their end. And then the offender is watching it on their end of the computer, both terrifying, both disgusting. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is going to haunt parents. This episode's going to haunt some parents for a while. Well, one takeaway from that particular point is that there are many options for preventing that from happening to your child or to a child or to even to you. And it could be making sure the most uh, minimal level is, you know, if you're using Zoom or Skype or whatever, know when you are completely logging out of the program. And sometimes just because the little light at the top of your laptop screen or your computer screen that indicates a camera being active, just because that light is off doesn't mean that the camera is off. And it could be a glitch in the software, whether whatever recordings or whatever software system you use, everybody really should be more aware of this. I mean, there have been incidents where uh, what was the big one? I can't remember what state it was in, but it was a school principal who was in on it with the IT guy, and they basically were hacking into all of the teenage girls' oh, school-assigned laptops. Great. The school was handing out laptops, and he was just basically you know, grabbing images of these girls because they would leave the laptop open. While they were going about their business. So, or you can just like get a post-it and put it over or get a Band-Aid and put it over the camera when you're not using it. And they even have these little adhesive plastic sliders that will cover the camera. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend you do a little research on that, listener. Yeah, there's a ton of safety precautions and privacy precautions you can take. Um, However, I, I did see an article this last week that online predators are very aware that children are using the internet way more right now during COVID right? and are online and are comfortable being online. Even, you know, the little kiddos who are just like having class through zoom. And so they're really with anything, especially with like any pandemic. And you and I've talked about bad guys taking advantage of that. They know children are online more right now. So there, there is something to that. Um, and there's just unfortunately always going to be someone taking advantage of the situation. So, um, okay. So I, I mentioned a little bit about sex tourism. Now there, we know, I, I'm sure we all have in our head, like what we think about with that, like somebody leaves and goes to another country to engage in sexual activity with a minor where perhaps it's legal or perhaps it's easier to do, or they won't get caught. That, that can fall under this. I've had clients that, set up sex tourism trips to other parts of the world. And the second they get on the plane, the FBI rushes in and arrests them. Um, And they do fall under some of these federal solicitation 
uh, non-contact offense categories. Um, but there's also webcam sex tourism, which is, I just remember hearing about this and how horrific it was, but yeah, this, this is the, this is something that disturbs me. Yeah. I, well, I mean, it all just, it all disturbs me, but this one particularly is aware because I know where you're going with this and the implications are really frightening. They're really frightening. And I'm going to link a video for you guys to be able to see how this is being um, battled and how countries are coming up with innovative ideas of how to catch some of these individuals. But essentially, there are countries where there is so much poverty that families actually are allowing children to engage in some of this virtual cyber sex, whether it's voyeurism or exhibitionism. And individuals over here in the United States and other countries are paying those families to be able to utilize their children for that service online, which is horrific that some families think that they need to do that. Um, but essentially, these these men are contacting children in other countries that have webcams and paying for online sexual services. Um, and sometimes it goes even further than just um, directing the child into exhibitionism or directing the child via the cam into act. Sometimes the parents are actively like once there are incidents where parents are realizing like, Oh, I can make money out of this. And they start seeing it as just their, you know, they may even engage in forcing their children to do these activities that are being requested by the the viewer, which is just incredibly disturbing, incredibly disturbing. It is. It is. Um, so there's a research entity. I think they're out of the Netherlands. They're called Terre de Ohms. Um, and they decided to do this really cool thing. And this is what's going to be in the link that I'm going to put in the show notes. They developed a CGI 10-year-old Philippine girl. And she... It, she was able to engage with these online predators without them even knowing that she wasn't real. And so they were able to capture thousands of IP addresses and pass that on to the authorities. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. It's so scary how easy it was to be able to just put this CGI girl up there and she was getting solicitations like within minutes so i remember what what's the, what was the name of the ai or the cgi was it like sweetie or sweetie like okay but here's the question i have for that is they weren't able to get when they capture the ip addresses and then they start investigations they didn't actually get the perpetrators for that particular incident because a real person wasn't involved but did they get them for other things that they had on their computer Well, so it started an investigation. I don't know what happened with all of these, but they're able to say, hey, these are folks you probably want to look into. And I I bet you it's enough to at least get a search warrant. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or start start monitoring their their streams. Yeah, their threads. Because if if they're not getting what they want out of this one, they're on to the next one. So it's it's 
not as if it's so sporadic that you're not going to immediately find something if you start looking into this person. But they identified adults from more than 65 countries and passed all that information on um, to the authorities in those countries. So, so campaigns like this and innovation like this, I think, is really exciting and has to be done to battle some of this online sex trafficking that's happening because it's just it it's pretty terrifying when you start thinking of it in numbers of how many primarily men obviously around the world or just here in the United States are into this are doing this and i remember when i don't know maybe 7 years ago 10 years ago i was told like how many ip addresses throughout the united states had accessed child pornography and it was mind blowing i mean we we can talk about like what child pornography is and and how that's categorized but hundreds of thousands of ip addresses throughout the country are accessing child pornography at any given time so let's get into a little bit as to so those are the main categories of offenses we're going to talk about here and sort of the psychology even divvying it up a little bit more but why is this such a big thing? Why is have the numbers just exploded the way that they have? I mean, literally, law enforcement could not keep up with it once they found out, you know, this is what's happening and we know how to start going after this and fighting it. So I think definitely it, what we famously refer to as the triple A's with this, it's to access child pornography or to um, engage in some of these other behaviors, it's anonymous, right? You can jump online, be fairly what you think is anonymous. And I'm not saying this is real. I mean, obviously, you can be traced back in lots of different ways. But the perpetrator has a sense of anonymity to where they think they won't be the ones to get caught and they're sitting behind a computer screen, which makes a lot of people bold for a lot of different reasons. Right. And so anonymity lends to disinhibition of actions, behaviors, thoughts. Yes. Yes. You're creating your own little cognitive distorted bubble to live in. Yep. So there's there's anonymous, there's affordable child sexual abuse images can be obtained for free. You know, no longer are the days of having to give your credit card necessarily to a website to access child pornography. There is so much, especially if you're savvy and can navigate the dark web, that you can just get for free. So there's the affordability piece of it, as well as accessibility for all the reasons that we've sort of talked about already. If if you can navigate and you want to find it and put in the time and effort, it's going to be accessible for you. So going back to, you know, maybe how this is just a crime that existed before even the internet, back before the internet, I mean, people would have to go to great lengths to obtain child pornography if they weren't producing it themselves. You would maybe have to order something from overseas. You would have to actually get it in the U.S. mail. You would have to pay for it with a credit card or, or however. And that's why a lot of the 
charges, especially federally, have such steep consequences and sentences is because it's sort of based on this old system of using the U.S. mail, which will basically get you locked up in federal prison forever if you do anything nefarious through the U.S. mail. But it, it was much more labor intensive without the internet back in the day. So that's why we kind of see this, just the numbers explode once the the internet comes into play here. And law enforcement's response has tried to keep up with that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like with anything, especially virtual crime, that they are just sort of playing catch up. But just to give you some numbers, so the, these are older numbers, but between 1998 and 2006, the online enticement of children increased by 400%. Oh, my gosh. So imagine any type of crime increasing 400% and then all of a sudden, holy shit, do we have the investigators? Do we have the manpower? Do we have the technology to even start attacking this? Well, and, and also the idea, I think, of all those points, do we have the technology is almost the primary point from my point of view because government and law enforcement agencies generally are behind the curve right. on individuals' use of technology. I mean, they may be, you know, obviously that we have CIA and FBI and we have other government agencies that are on the cutting edge of like forecasting and staying on top of sort of big world events. But when it comes down to the micro level where, where you're saying an individual can easily access these things for free now, and and know how to mask their trail by using, you know, virtual networks and other things that they can teach themselves. Yeah, that's where it gets to be really difficult because it's nothing but catch up and it's barely ever catch up except when it's somebody who gets so cocky and has so many images that it's just a big waving red flag online. Right. Yeah. So during that same period of time, U.S. attorneys handled 82.8% more child pornography cases. Um, So a lot were getting filed as well. So I have some numbers here from the FBI Innocence Images Initiative, and they were looking at between 1996 and 2005, which would be your you know the internet coming into its prime essentially those years they found a 2000 over a 2000% increase in open cases and then a th- over 1300% increase in convictions so so yeah they were opening a ton of cases but then they're also doing a decent job with sort of keeping up on it and being able to make their cases but you know this is due to more law enforcement online and finding ways to shape their investigations online with better training. And I remember this period being working in law enforcement, like every, I remember going to a MySpace training, (laughs) you know, like there, you have to train your officers because they might not know what some of these things are. Um, But if you're a sex crimes detective, you better go to a MySpace training in 1999 or whatever to learn what it is. So you know how to collect evidence, you know, even if it's not just um, trying to keep offenses from being committed, but on the investigative end and and creating and collecting evidence. Um, Multi, I think multi-jurisdictional task forces were also part of their response. They realized, okay, we, one, we can't just let the FBI handle everything. They were overwhelmed, but how can we come together in a County if we're seeing this sort of explode or something like that? And then of course, new legislation 
there the laws which we know take forever to change really had to catch up to to accurately prosecute individuals for online sex offenses rather than just using like oh well what's on the books that's old that sort of feels like it catches this right you know either people would slip through the cracks because they wouldn't meet the criteria for any crime because it wasn't laid out or they were getting sentences that didn't necessarily match the crime because it was based on old data yeah and you know going back to what we started off with about takeaways from from our training is that sort of having to patchwork together that law enforcement having to patchwork together, like, okay, well, how can we get this individual? And the the problems with that is they're playing catch up. The legal system is playing catch up as well, because they're in, in many cases they're, you know, they're hunting, they're spreading a very wide net in some of these cases. It is right. possible. And it's not the majority of the cases, it's certainly not the majority of the cases, but even you and I saw some where we were like, clearly this person stumbled into right. this world. They had two images that came as a part of another set of completely unrelated images. And yet they're, they're awaiting trial and maybe going to prison for a long time. Right. We so, did. We saw those anecdotal cases. Yeah. I mean, and they're not a lot of them, but no, like anecdotal no. cases are concerning for anybody because you're in that position of like, wait, this could happen to you if you step the wrong way. Sure. You, you download a zip drive that says adult, pornography and if you download that zip drive and now there's two images of children in there and maybe that was bait maybe that was put out there you know yeah and literally someone in that situation could be facing 20 years in federal prison yeah so yeah thank you for for explaining that because it certainly was not the majority of the case but like scott's saying we've seen it yeah, I remember one of the feds that we talked to was explaining to us that really, you know, there's a there's a benchmark of the number of of images and I'm not going to say what that benchmark is, but it was I would I don't know if I would call it high or low. Um it's certainly not low. I don't know if it'd be high compared to like the really chronic collectors, but then we would see an example, you know, I would work with a a, a young individual like a, you know, a 21-year-old, terrified 21-year-old who's a computer geek and had three images on his computer that clearly came from something else. He's not meeting any of the criteria for the way we look at um, pedophiles or hebophiles. And, and the thing is, you know, Scott and I can assess these individuals. And I know as I continue to do this work, we really tried to get more data about the evidence collected to see sort of what the percentage ratio was, if you will, like, okay, uh, how many of their images are adults and how many are children? Because it helped me as a clinician to determine if this person had a deviant sexual interest in children. And we can do that assessment. And maybe I say, no, from what I find, from my expertise, from all of these assessment tools, this person doesn't meet the criteria for pedophilia, for example. The feds have a federal guideline system where it doesn't matter. If there, if there are certain checkboxes and criteria in the crime itself, the federal judge has to give them that sentence. Oh, 
okay. the judge can't say, oh, well, Dr. Shiloh said, you know, this isn't where your deviant sexual interest lies. I'm going to consider, you know, what your defense is, blah, blah, blah. It's mildly interesting to the court system. It's something that we ended up using for treatment more often. You know, here and there, you know, when the probation officer is sending our report in, it might say, you know, they're low risk for a future sex offense. But as far as just standard guidelines, it didn't matter much. Um, So when we look at contact, or I'm sorry, non-contact offenders or online offenders in comparison to the contact offenders that Scott and I have talked about in the past. So your, your child molesters, and um, individuals even who offend against adults. Online sex offenders typically have very little planning to their offense. The offending takes place over long periods of time, and we will talk about like the grooming that happens. And again, they're sitting behind their computer, so they can kind of take all the time in the world if they need to. They're not getting in their car and putting all this effort into it. Um, We do see that there are periods of abstinence. So there's sort of this cyclical effect to where they might engage in looking at child sexual abuse images, but then may get so disgusted with themselves that they say, okay, I'm going to stop like I can't. It it reminds me very similar to somebody who has a pornography addiction, how they kind of go into cycles of abstinence. I've had clients who like took their computer and set it on fire and, you know, threw it in a a (laughs) trash bin. Well, we both had one. A dumpster. Like, yes, that's going to fix it. That's going to erase everything. You threw your computer into the dumpster. (laughs) But, But I say that to illustrate that they swear they're done with it. Like, yeah. this is it. I'm literally taking this thing out of my house. Um, and maybe if they didn't set it on fire, a couple of days later, they're like, oh, I wonder if the trash has been picked up yet. I'm going to go get my computer. We're also seeing younger offenders because the internet is so easy to access that I've had tons of clients on my caseload who started viewing child sexual abuse images when they were children. I mean, I'm talking nine, 10, of course, up into teenage years, which is its whole other interesting aspect because adults are kind of gross to them at that age. And so they're looking for peers. So it technically isn't really deviant because they're looking at age mates. But then at some point they grow up and they keep looking at the younger aged images. So that's that's an interesting phenomenon with this as well. Um, and it seems like online offenders tend to have more hypersexual tendencies when it comes to various cyber sex outlets. Like they are they are in, maybe engaged in more than one of these behaviors that we've talked about, or they're sort of doing this binging um, that you just can't really do with contact offending necessarily, uh, which good i mean i mean i'm glad it, it can't be done well, so easily in the real world but but it's also about that difference between reality versus non-reality or um you know the virtual world is that there's a different set of neurological and physiological things that happen when you're having intimacy with another person and i'm talking adult to adult legal consent of and then if there was like a, a contact offense 
there is a, a physiological response that's happening. And that physiological response is very different from what happens when someone is viewing and immersing and saturating themselves in pornography, because it's, it's like somebody smoking an entire pack of cigarettes just over right. and over and over again. Whereas, you know, you, you can't, you don't have the physical stamina to do that in the biological world, but in the virtual world you do. And you're, Unfortunately, you are literally rewiring your brain by doing that. You're rewiring, you know, in the same way we talk about exposure to pornography for children can give them, especially young men today, gives them a very, very skewed view of what intimacy between adult consenting partners is like. It's this Absolutely. overblown, just it's an unrealistic view of what sex is like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, good point. So the potential victims here, um, these are specific to the United States, these statistics, but, and these are a tad old, so they may even be higher. 93% of adolescents and teens go online. Um, You have 80% of kids five and younger going online at least once a week. So again, kind of going back to that is probably even higher with the current pandemic situation. And one in 25 children, and we're looking at ages 10 to 17 here, have received an online sexual solicitation in which the perpetrator suggested offline contact, like let's Mm. meet up in person. So that's, I mean, you know, one in 25, and I'm guessing it's, um, you know, even more now, because I want to say that those are probably seven years old, the statistics. So, so internet child pornography, should we get into that in a little bit more detail? Yeah, let's, let's do this before we take our break. Can you touch on that? And then we're going to come back with examples and we're going to talk specifically about cognitive distortions. Would that work? Yeah, let's do that. Perfect. So the content of child sexual abuse images is, has a disturbing trend to it. Over half of it, 52%, involves prepubescent children. Um, 42% is pubescent, so um, pubescent or postpubescent. So think teenagers or adolescents who have secondary sex characteristics in their development. And then 6% involves infants or toddlers, very young. Typically, the majority of child sexual abuse images involves a female victim. And now the trend is of younger children and more explicit acts being performed. The majority is amateur and and it's kind of, it's not that any of this is produced at a professional level, like we would think of like an amateur. As adult videos, yeah. Right, as adult videos. Um, But there are countries and entities and people in this world, unfortunately, that this is all they do and that it is feels has a very produced feel to it. So that's sort of how they divvy up amateur versus that. Um, And so the majority would be images that are sort of taken of family members and then sort of starting to pass those around. So it is... um, amateur in that it's it might be a a harmless photo but then it gets into the wrong hands and starts getting passed around of you know a, a child in a naked or in a sexual pose or something like that or an adult type pose so still images as well as you know the awful videos that are out there are 
generally amateur. So that's that's what's making up the content of what's out there. Of course, there there is everything that you could possibly think of. You know, it's interesting for me to say that typically it's prepubescent girls that are depicted when it, it's out there because it's really interesting that it's of note that the majority that there's prepubescent girls involved as opposed to boys. And Scott, you'll probably remember this when we were doing risk assessments on these offenders, that one of the criteria, one of the risk factors that we would look at is whether or not the content was male or female, or was the was it a male victim or female victim? And for those individuals who have a sexual interest in males, for male sex offenders who have a sexual interest in male children, it actually puts them at higher risk for reoffense. That's when you see more of the deviant sexual interest, the pedophilia being involved, is when male victims are the the target for these perpetrators. But you know, forty two percent post-pubescent, again, those are going to be teenagers. Those are going to be, this is kind of one of those other interesting areas, right? Because we've talked before in our our paraphilia episode way back in 2017 about how the average adult normal male is attracted to post-pubescent teenagers. If she has developed breasts and she has curves and she you know, has pubic hair and is post-pubescent, that is something that is physically attractive to heterosexual men. There's nothing wrong with that. You just can't touch until she's of age. But that those physical characteristics are something that is something that's normal for men to be attracted to. Right. And they're supposed to be, you know, our our engagement in social and cultural rules is managing the balance between understanding that there's a biological reproductive imperative that is built into our our physiology and balancing it with this person, yes, although uh, this individual would be intra- attracted to this underage individual, it is inappropriate legally, culturally, emotionally. You're, you're, you're basically, your dick is doing your thinking in that moment, right? Right, right. And I, I think, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, no, it's just basically that's it. It's like, remember, you're, you're, you're not actually thinking, you're just being driven by hormones and sort of the most primitive part of our mammalian brain, which should be balanced by executive functioning in the front lobes of your brain that says, no, this person is underage. This is not an option to engage in this behaviors with, and which is actually really interesting because it links up to the number of sex offenders who have head injuries as well, like sort of that um, head injuries to the frontal lobes. And I point this out because I want people to understand the reality of the pornography that's out there. And when I say 42% are post-pubescent, I want you to understand that there is a good chunk that is not just the worst of the worst that we think about with little children. And when you, you're sort of, as we're diving into the psychology here, I want you to think, okay, there are people, yes, there's a big chunk that are primarily interested in prepubescent children. That, that sexual deviance right there. But then there's also a subset of men who are normally sexually attracted to teenagers who are seeking out this content online. And you and I have seen, we've had, we had individuals on our caseload 
that just had adolescent porn. Right. It was just post-pubescent. You know, with the federal laws the way they are, it's really tricky. You there, I've seen even articles um, about cases like this where because the federal age of consent and cutoff for child sexual abuse images is 18 years old, you can have a couple in let's say Texas, I think the the age of consent is 16 or 17 in Texas. You can have a 16-year-old in a relationship with a 25-year-old that is perfectly legal, but if she sends him a naked picture of herself, it could be possession of child pornography at the federal level. Wow. So there's a lot of stuff that doesn't match up that legally has to be worked out. Um, and I think, you know, to wrap up here before we take our break, our job as clinicians was to say, what is going on here? What are the motivations? Is it a paraphilia? Is it a sexual deviance that we have to work on? Or is it more situational to where we have to get this person, like you were saying, to start thinking and making right decisions and understand what the law is and that you cannot do this even to just indulge yourself sexually behind your laptop. Exactly. And hopefully not to reoffend in the future and, in either of those cases. Yeah. And then just illustrating the difficulty in that when we have federal an, an umbrella of federal rules and each state gets to be making its own decisions about and, and there are cultures in each state that reflect that Texas. And, you know, there was a big case in Alabama, my home state, uh, several years ago where Roy Moore um, a politician who, you know, clearly had a significant history of interacting as an adult with underage as young as 14. And the people that came out in support of him were using biblical text. I mean, just like the craziest cognitive distortions to, to justify that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, just because it's a biological drive doesn't mean it's legal. That's what we should break with. Right. And it's, it's so complicated with the way that our system is. And as you and I laid out before, it's sort of a result of the laws trying to catch up with technology. And so here we are with all of this stuff layered over each other. And then you and I as clinicians get to just like try and figure it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, folks, we're going to take a break and we will be right back uh, with some examples and a little bit more learning about cognitive distortions. <laughs> we'll come back with a little bit more education about cognitive distortions and how they play out in uh, the role of sex offenses. Hi, everyone. Thanks for sticking in. This was a really long episode, so long, in fact, that we realized that part two coming back from the break has to be an entire other episode. But don't worry, the episode is going to go right up within one to two days after the posting of this one. So thanks for sticking with us, and we'll see you shortly on LA Not So Confidential. Mm-hmm. 